Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the last episode of Guilt. As I got out of my car, Dave's coming out of the batch and um, Donald's right there. Um, and Dave had the um, Heidi Parker him by the elbow and she's looking really scared like I looked at her from three or four metres away and she looked petrified. I started telling them that hey you fellas probably got the wrong fellas because um, I've seen these two here in this photo in here. Yeah. You know right at the beginning of this farm and then funny how that one of them ends up out the back of the farm dead. Um, bit of a coincidence. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive. And I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. David Turner had her by the elbow, and she looked really scared. I looked at her from three or four metres away and she looked petrified. 26 words spoken by Darren Old in the last episode that finally begins to pull back the curtains and reveal the truth after 34 years. That the story told by police that Heidi and her barn were murdered in Crosby's Clearing in Thames by David Tamahedi is at the very least not the complete picture. Clearly, it would seem that there were other people involved in their murders. Darren Old has been very clear to me that in the few minutes he was at that Taikato property when he saw Heidi in her barn, he saw no one else. And definitely, no David Tamahedi. As usual, when a new door opens we find a whole new set of doors to choose from. 
there are so many questions. And my biggest one right now is how do I corroborate what Darren saw? Could he be mistaken? Was there some other couple who drove a similar car and looked identical? Or perhaps Darren got his dates wrong and he walked into some completely different event. And the question nagging at the corner of my mind, the one that concerns me most, if Darren did try and tell police in 1991 when he found the body, why did they do nothing? Is it possible that they may have known the truth this whole time? The mere thought makes me feel sick to my stomach. And there's one inescapable truth that is emerging. If Heidi and Oban were alive here, on this property in Parakawai, and Oban's body was found only two kilometres away, then it would seem that clearly he was never anywhere near Crosby's clearing. What then of Heidi? How can we explain her being here in Parakawai, then somehow being in Crosby's clearing with David Tamahiri? Do we need to consider that it wasn't Heidi that Mel Knopf and John Cassidy saw on Saturday, April 8th, 1989? And the glaring problem with that realisation, if it wasn't Heidi in Crosby's clearing, then how did her jacket and wallet suddenly appear for Graham Pierce to find in July after the area had already been searched? I was recently contacted by Mel Knopf's son, Justin, who told me that he believed the jacket and wallet could have been missed because that particular area wasn't searched as intensively as, say, the areas around Crosby's clearing seems that there are people sitting on both sides of the fence when it comes to this discovery. And as usual, the only way to really know is to see it for myself. So that's what I did. Okay, it is an early start. Uh, It's 5.30 and I've just jumped in the truck and I'm heading... Uh, to meet Ray Clark and he actually happens to be the husband of Michelle Manning who is the daughter of Graham Manning the four square owner in Thames and you know it's sort of New Zealand is the way we are I mean the same as Heidi and Urban found when they were here I mean in New Zealand you'd you sort of meet a person and they'll offer you to stay in their house and you know look after the dogs and and in this case Michelle said hey if you're planning on going up to Crosby's Clearing uh, my husband is that's his bread and butter he's lived up there and he works over in Aussie and he was just back for the week so I said yep I'll take you up on that offer so long story short I'm driving to Thames to meet Ray and we're going to tackle Crosby's clearing today 
have a look around and come back down so we're going to do a loop so it'll be a good day but the main the most important reason that I want to come up here is not Crosby's clearing even though I do want to see it it's about where that jacket and wallet was found because as you've probably guessed by now I don't believe Crosby's clearing has anything to do with this case really but we know damn well that that jacket and wallet those were Heidi's so somehow those got here somehow they were either missed in the initial search which I've been told is I've been told actually from both sides I've had someone call me and say hey I think it could have been missed I was part of that search uh, he said that when we did search those tracks they were searched but not you know not quite to that level and it could have been missed but then I've had two other people that were part of the search that said it couldn't have been missed it was too obvious the animal track was only it was only a couple meters from the track anyway so today I'm looking forward to the opportunity to go and see for myself <clears throat> you know obviously this is going to have changed a lot in 34 years to what it was back then but the distance of the spot from where the track is it won't have changed so I hope but anyway let's not drag this on looking forward to it the weather's fantastic it's been raining lately but it is beautiful blue sky the moon's out and looking forward to a fantastic day today nice to go stretch the legs and get, get my head out of the office and sometimes that can be a bit overwhelming day after day of writing okay you'll hear from me very soon i meet ray and michelle clark in the center of thames and ray jumps in with me as michelle heads off to work i'm very fortunate to have ray as my guide i've been told that there aren't many people that know this area of bush better than him he's 62 and is back in New Zealand for a week from his mining job in Perth, Australia. Ray tells me this bush is his happy place. And the moment he gets home, it's the first place he heads. As much as the hunting, he enjoys working with his dogs and the lifestyle of catching and growing the food they eat. I get the feeling not many Big Macs would have snuck past Ray's lips. We're just doing an up and back loop today, so we're traveling light. I've got a small pack with my drone and some lunch, and Ray, well, Ray just has his GPS unit, which we're going to use to pinpoint the exact location Graham Pierce found Heidi's jacket back in July of 1989. Okay, so we've we've just gone through the Tararu Creek Road end uh, car park and started the track. We've gotten lucky; it's an absolute stunning day. Not a cloud in the sky. She's pretty wet underfoot, though. Here with Ray Clark, and Ray knows this area like the back of his hand. Apparently, <laughs> I've been up here a few times. Up here a few times, yeah. 
Uh, so plan today is to make our way straight up this track and so will we go through that towards that intersection to the jam tins where the jacket was found? The jacket and that was found according to the coordinates um, before the jam tins. Yeah. But probably only about 10 minutes. So we've got um, we've got GPS coordinates of where the the jacket and the wallet was found. So yes, we've just turned off. She's um, she's not what I'd say is your standard um, dock track. She's pretty wet and muddy. She's um, yeah, she's she's pretty thick stuff here. In terms of um, you know, it's not a track that's you can tell it's not walked often every day. It's not like hundreds of people are walking up here. No, yeah, well, yeah, so at the end of the Kauranga Valley there's the Pinnacles track, which is sort of one of the more famous overnight tracks in New Zealand, which I've actually done not so long ago. And yeah, I mean, that's sort of like a bloody expressway. This is not like that. Okay, so we've, um, the track's disappeared. <laughs> and we've just... There's a slip, we're going to have to make our way across it, maybe, should we, uh, should we go down and across like that way there? It's going to be boggy as hell, oh. yeah, we'll get there. So Ray's going to lead the way, oh yeah, she's boggy alright. So there's a big slip that's come down. Within only a few minutes of starting, we run into a problem. A large slip has wiped out the track. Taking a step closer, we discover it's deep mud and while Ray makes his way through with knee-high waders, my boots are quickly submerged. Shit. Fuck, it's a hell of a slip, all right? Bloody hell. Oh, so this would be maybe why the track's closed. Fucking hell. Which direction's the track from here? Through there, right. So I've only got sort of ankle high boots on, slightly higher. Ray's got more like, he's got waders on. This mud is deep. I'd rather not get mud right over my boots to start the day. Ray's taken quite a direct route. I'm gonna trying I'm just going to skirt the edge a bit to try and stop the mud getting right over my boots my boots are only quite low fuck this is muddy as fuck oh bloody hell I can't even get through. Fuck, I'm tempted to take my boots off. Now I'm gonna go right back around the top. Otherwise I'm just gonna get mud in my boots. I don't include many lighter moments in this podcast, but me struggling through the mud like a city slicker, well, there's one for you. Once I eventually navigate to the other side, I find Ray waiting patiently for me, and we continue on up the track. Um, so in your time when you were up here all that time, did you ever see Tamahiri up here? No, no, and that, that surprised me in a, in a way because I used to 
quite often go running and run through Crosby's go from Thames and out to you know Tishpur or wherever. So I came here through a lot and I never ever seen sign of them at all. And that yeah. I've only ever seen pictures of them in the media. As we make our way up through the bush, I wonder out loud why Crosby's settlement would be built way out here in the middle of nowhere. And Ray tells me that originally there was a road planned which would have connected it to the outside world. But when an alternative route was found that would save 500 pounds, the road to Crosby's was scrapped and the settlement slowly died. But old wooden planks embedded in the track show that some signs of its existence still remain. And, um, he says that this is actually the old road. This would have been the pack track, I guess, for the horses and... Yeah, yeah, um... It was to extent, but the main was the main pack track was from Crosby Settlement down by the Karaka and the wire tie. Oh, okay. To the mining, and if you carried on to the jumpers, you can see all of the wooden slates, um, which would have been there to keep the parts for rolling out of the mud. Yeah. That? Yeah, well, you can sort of already get a sense of how bloody wet it is in here. You know, like. We've had a bit of rain the last week, but, you know, fuck. I could imagine in winter, like, in, when it's real bad, it'd be almost impassable. Well, <laughs> maybe for some. I just imagine with bloody horses, with carts and stuff. Yeah. People had a bit more perseverance back in those days, though, <laughs> than today. Oh shit, that's a nice waterfall. Wow, that's beautiful. There's a uh, waterfall just cutting down through the through the valley. Shit, that's pretty. Uh, so we've just come along the track, and this is one thing you know I love about this area. There's a sign here: danger. This old mine contains unstable ground conditions. Do not enter. And off the track, there's a a mine shaft which is about seven feet high and about three feet wide and I'm gonna take us a couple steps in here and yeah I'll put some photos on my Instagram but it's pretty cool there's water that's built in and dripping down but you can see the the walls are straight and you can see the the marks from the pickaxes you know some fascinating history up these places right Ray's waiting for me, so I'm going to keep going. But no, it is really beautiful and very untouched here. We make quick time, and after just over an hour, Ray turns left, and we follow a side track to view the big slip that Eddie Corbett spoke of early in the podcast. It was Eddie's belief that Tamahiri used to descend down the slip and up the other side to Crosby's, and if he was a betting man. This is where he believes her remains will be found. So basically when they talk about the big slip, if you're not familiar with what a slip is, a slip is more or less when the side of a hill or a mountain just sort of slips away. Right, so shit, we've just walked out into open, open view now. Wow. All we can see in every direction is uh, forest. Right. And then the ocean over to the west coast of the Coromandel Peninsula. 
And if uh, what you say is about Tamahiri walking down the ridge at the big slip, that'll be this ridge here. Oh, yep. Okay, and you can see I was uh, creek here and creek there. At the bottom of there is where that Hartinsville told you is. Oh. So if he's going down that ridge, he has to be going to what's known as the Billy Goat Hut, but it's um was built by, oh, I can't remember his name, an old guy years ago. And that, that's mines are in that down there. So Crosby's would be, so and you'd go up that way? Yep. Yep. From where we're standing, all we can see is forest, extending from east to west. But for the first time, we have a view of the former Crosby settlement. And now standing here, I can finally get an appreciation of just how big this place was. Today, it's been completely overgrown by trees. But 50 years ago, this was all grassland with dairy cows and grazing stock. Ray has a lot of knowledge on the area and points out a number of features before we get back to the track and into the bush, on to our next stop, and the most important one for me today, the exact spot Graham found Heidi's jacket. Yeah, but you don't need to go and see those. No, no, well, let's go see <laughs> this, where this jacket and stuff was. So this is the thing I'm sort of the most interested to see today because this is the biggest mystery of this, well, not the biggest mystery of the case, but it's right up there. How much do you think, you know, obviously things have changed, but would it still be more or less the same kind of makeup of bush as it was back then? Yeah, still the same. Still the same, yeah. That rubbish is still the same. Still all the same, yeah. Like where, where we're going to look for where this is supposed to be is where we've got grid search. Oh, okay, so you reckon you'd grid search there too? Yeah, no, we'd, we'd already grid search it. I guess I can't, like, it does seem strange. So yeah, just to be clear too, so Ray was part of the original search, just like, you know, Jason Donald and Justin Knopf and all these guys and Mel Knopf and Cass and because they were so knowledgeable about the area, Ray was, he tells me he used to do some big runs through here, sort of, I guess what we'd call adventure running nowadays, but, uh, and lots of hunting and so he was part of the searches through here and he says that they grid searched this exact area before the jacket was found. So what's that there? Is that a what's that a pig or something? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. The GPS tells us we're only 20 metres away from the spot. And as we come around a bend, the track dips slightly and Ray stops. This is it. Oh yeah, I can see it's opening up a bit down here. So Graham told me that right, um, you know, he said right next to where it was it dropped off down a steep bank mm-hmm. he described I, I stood he described exactly his actions when he found it so if you got that path that was good if, if i got that path that was shit oh, so you searched this actual spot yeah this yeah. actual spot but i was I, but i was i know i was on the yeah, left hand side coming up where we researched yeah but there was, there was people everywhere there was you know well you know there was that many groups up there was, I don't know, you might have used something more than I do, the number of people on it. Yeah, so according to this, it's northeast, which is just in here, four metres. 
But then, you, but give or take a little bit. Yeah, and then you're 12 meters other than that. Yeah, because Jason told me you come down. He said you come down like a um, down here, I think. Yeah, so you'd come down here, and then I think. So he said there was a little animal track because Jason's been here too. He said you ducked down. There was a mound. There's a little mound here. So, yeah, we're in a little bit of a hollow. So Graham described it as he came down and then there was a little track, like a little animal track he followed behind a mound, he said. And he went like, he said he went like this. He walked up to look down the thing and then when he turned back, he saw the jacket. So we're kind of, I feel like, right here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, this could be it here. This could be it here. I mean, that's the thing. I don't know the exact spot, but it's right. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's this spot here. Although I am twelve meters here, so I think it's gonna be just in behind this somewhere. You know, you hop behind a mound. This is what he said, it was kind of a little bit built up. He said he walked down behind and he went to look down the bank. He looks over the bank, he put his hand on the tree, and then as he turned back he saw the jacket. Shit, there's pig sign everywhere. <laughs> Bloody hell, I'm pretty much a hunter now. <laughs> so Ray's just cutting through with his secateurs. Maybe this, see, look, that's a little bit of a hollow yeah. in there, isn't it? Yeah. I reckon you might be right on the money here. This will, this will be the spot here. So we're standing, you know, we're right in the middle of all these vines. Um, we've sort of just come off the track probably three, four metres and that drops away down into the gully to our right. But it's all thick bush, you can't see that far down. But I think this is, so Graham said he came off the track to the right, he looked down and then when he turned back he saw the jacket. I think that this is, I think that this is the spot right here. I mean, my first thought is, how could this be missed? I just find that hard to believe. Bird be going down shoulder to shoulder, and just walking through in a line. Yeah, like I said, like I said, we were going through stuff like this because that was your line, and it was never. I spoke to Graham recently, and he told me that at the time he believes the vegetation above the mound was a bit more built up and police cut it all back when they searched it intensively after the discovery. But Ray tells me that in the last 34 years, it has regrown to be pretty similar to what it was in 1989. And somewhat of a bonus for me, Ray tells me that he was a part of the search team that came through this very area. He says they contact searched right along this track and well down either side. And seeing the spot the jacket was found, for Ray at least, he believes it had to have been put there after they searched. You know, so he's gone, looked down the hill, then as he's turned to come back, there's the jacket somewhere in here, just sitting here. Now Ray says that he was part of these searches and he said they searched all through here. He says 100% they searched through the spot. This is not hidden. I mean, fuck. It's obvious as hell. 
obvious as hell. I mean, you can see just up there. I mean, that's the track. I mean, the track's right there. We're not miles away or anything. He reckoned that on those original searches, people were looking more for like a person that might have been fallen down as yep. opposed to like an item of something. No, we got told look for everything. Look for everything? Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, well, that's what we, well, that's what I was looking for anyway, and that's what, because obviously you weren't going to, well, hopefully you weren't going to find a body, but even, well, probably even good if we had it, but, yeah, I was, we were looking for everything, by any, like, like, not so much jackets, but anything, anything. You see but, a jacket sitting there, you're going to yeah, look at it. You know, or anything that had been lost, you know, like, you could have, you know, put a clothing, a bit of anything. Mm. So that's what we were looking for, and like I said, I might get, you might be here, I might be down there, and we're going through that. Yeah. It just, it did, so it didn't really... It sort of seems like a good spot to me if you were going to plant something to make it look like, oh, it could have been missed, but you sort of know it will be found. You know, someone's oh, going yeah. to stumble across it. Yeah, well, just close to the track. Just close to the bloody track, it'd have to be. Yeah. I mean, people are going to disagree with this, and, you know, everyone's got their own opinion, but Ray was part of this search. I'm standing here right now. I... I I'd say the chances of this being missed have got to be very fucking low. If you're talking about a bright coloured jacket sitting, a bright blue jacket. It was a bright blue jacket folded up square. It wasn't like crumpled under a pile of leaves. And when Graham found it, he said that on top of it, it wasn't like it was covered in foliage. It had like maybe a single leaf on it. Yeah. No. Anyway. Or anyway, right, well, shall we continue to Crosby's? As I said... There will be those who disagree, but standing here in this spot, if this jacket was missed in the initial searches, then they must have been searching with their eyes closed. And I think we can give them more credit than that. The spot is no more than a few meters from the track. And although it might sound dense in the audio, it's not. And the way the track bends around the mound it almost invites you to look behind it. I mean, Graham Pierce, up here by himself, found it. Because the spot is just so obvious. I'll always accept that there's a minute possibility it was missed in the initial searches. But if we combine this minute possibility with the bizarre discovery of the tent nine months later, which again is only explained as being missed by poor searchers, then I think we have cause for grave concern. I'm going to move on from this for the moment, but I want you to really consider who is it that benefited most from the discovery of the tent, the wallet, and the jacket. I think it was three Crosby brothers and um, Joshua Lloyds. So we've just come out at Jamtons now. There's a sign here pointing. In a, so there's, the track splits off. Uh, and it's been about 15 minutes since we were at the spot where the jacket was. So Ray and I continue on for a short distance until we come to what is known as the Jamtons intersection. It's the spot where the Tararoo track meets the Crosby's track. To me... The proximity of this intersection with the location of the jacket always struck me as curious. Because if someone did come up here later and plant the jacket and wallet, could they have used this alternate track 
arrived at the Jamtins intersection, then walked the short distance down the Tararu track to place the items, then walked back to the intersection and leave the way they came. Unseen. If the items were planted, then I think that's exactly how it would have been done. Ray and I leave the Jamtins and continue on to Crosby's. And after a couple hours, we start to see signs of the historic community. So we're up in, um, been going for three and a half hours now and we've sort of reached Crosby's, the, well, I guess the beginning of the settlement. And Ray's just saying, you know, it's crazy because he remembers coming out here when he was only 12 and hunting and it was all grassland all around where we are. And today it's just bush. You, you know, you wouldn't know, but we've just come up some steps and, you know, there's an old, an old fence here that he says is, you know, original from back then and there's a few of the posts that still are still hanging on. Some old wire. But yeah, I mean, if it is quite incredible what can happen in the space of, you know, 50 years. Right, so we've just come out at, I guess, is it called Crosby's Hut? Ah, uh, it was a dock, Crosby's Dock Hut. Yeah, Crosby's Dock Hut, it's a beautiful hut. It's more like a bloody batch. Yep. Shit, what a view. Yeah. What a view. So we're sort of on the top of a, a knob. Uh, just walking out across now. Oh, wow. I've just come up there to the next to the hut here, right on the edge. There's the memorial. It's a big piece of it's a piece of concrete that's got a, a rock in it and then a, um, a plaque here which says in memory of Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin, Swedish tourists who died tragically near here on the 8th of the 9th, April 1989. I mean whether they died near here or not is probably a moot point but you know, this memorial plaque here does represent, you know, this young couple that lost their lives here. So it's, yeah, it's a, a sad thing, that's for sure. Especially the fact that, you know, Heidi's still lying out somewhere. Sometimes, this whole case, and what I do, can seem so abstract. It doesn't even feel real. I read so much about Heidi and Urban in books and online, but yet there is no connection with the real world. I always planned to visit Crosby's and this memorial which was erected by police and search and rescue in 1999. But the timing needed to be right. And today, as I move into the final chapters of the podcast, I feel that timing is perfect. And to kneel here and see their names written in stone, it fills me with such sadness and anger 
and it's a reminder that these are real people whose lives were taken far too soon. And for this couple and their families on the other side of the world, I want them to know that there is a wave building in New Zealand. And as more and more people come forward with new evidence, the wave is getting ready to break and sweep the history of this case before it. We haven't forgotten. And we'll never give up until we find Heidi. In 1989, the Coromandel and Whangamata has been described to me by many people as the Wild West. A lawless land of beautiful beaches, booze and drugs. A far cry from the streets lined with million dollar homes we see today. While people have described it as lawless, there were police. Well, there was one man. It fell on a single person to administer the law in Whangamata. Bob Cardi. Yeah, I was the uh, sole uh, man there for a few years and then it became a two-man station. Okay, so you but, were... Um, what was your position? Just constable. Yeah. Oh, so you were running that whole Whangamata area? Yeah, yeah, between um, what Furutoa and uh, Tyra, really. Yeah. There was a policeman at Tyra. I went there in '86, okay. and uh, left the police in '94. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you were out there in that Wangamata area around '89. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember the? Were you involved in the Swede case at all? Not at all. It was a CIB operation, and uh, we weren't even involved. It was like it happened, you know, north of Thames, so it wasn't really our interest until they uh, found the uh, the remains. Okay. Were you aware at the time of any sort of sightings of the Swedes or anything in that Whangamata area? No. No, nothing was reported to us. Yeah. And um, so... What did you think when you heard that Urban's body was discovered up in Prakawai there? Oh, you know, it was a bit of a surprise, I guess, because it was uh, totally in the wrong area where everybody was looking. Yeah. Um, and were you familiar with um, a couple of guys by the name of David Turner and James Turner? Uh, those no, those names don't ring any bells. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So it was the the Taikato property, which ran back. Um, it ran basically back up to where that body was found, and there was yeah, there was yeah, there was that this Prakawai Valley Road, and there wasn't there weren't many houses on there at the time. Yeah, yeah but you do remember Darren Old. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, Darren was bad, but he was good. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how what he said. Yeah. yeah, no. Yeah, so he ended up being the one that um that found the body. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. See, we, I only went up there once, and that was I wasn't even involved in the search. It was just to see where it was, yeah. and uh, and that was all I had. The only involvement I had with it. Yeah, so he, he's come to me with this, and of course it, it's pretty big stuff, and he's got some other things as well that he saw around that property and around these guys at that time that that are sort of really ringing alarm bells. And so yeah. I, yeah, yeah, so I'm... We, we didn't receive, I didn't receive any sort of information like that or ask to, to, you know, to contact anybody to pass it on or anything. And that's all out of the for me. By ninety one, um, I think that would have been we would have had a sergeant there by then. Okay. There's about and there's be about two or three yeah, there was three of us in the at the police, in the police station at that time. Okay. So when so when that Swede case was on, the Hughes's team, they never came to you guys to you and said, Hey, have there been any sightings or anything in this area? Well, they would have probably come, called in and just said what was happening, but um, as I say, I received no information from any locals or anybody okay. about it. Yep. My my involvement was just minimal, you know. Went out there once, and uh, and that was it. Uh, we were just weren't, and I just wasn't involved in it at all. Yeah. Now, as I said, it was all happening north of Thames, you know, when it was all on when they were missing. Yeah, and then, then that surprise find out of Wangamata. Bob said he can't speak for the police who followed him in the years after he retired, or the others that eventually joined the station in '91. But he told me that no one ever came to him personally with any information related to the murders of Heidi and her barn. And as far as Operation Stockholm. He was never included in this discussion by CIB that were running the case, which came as somewhat of a surprise to me. I'd have assumed that when Urban's body was discovered in such a seemingly random location, CIB would have been more interested in what local police might have to say. But apparently not. And there's a pretty obvious reason why. Urban's body being discovered here was somewhat of an embarrassment for New Zealand's CIB and John Hughes, when it was supposed to be either 73 kilometres away in Crosby's Clearing or buried at sea. Like Darren Old said, when he found the body, he tried to tell police that he'd seen Heidi and her barn on the Taikato farm with the Turner brothers. And they didn't want to listen. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Someone said to me recently, this case is like a movie. It's so crazy. But I had to disagree. Because no one would believe a script like this. The next thing I'm going to discuss is so wild that if true, it would be one of the most explosive new pieces of evidence in this case. That the white Subaru station wagon that was found dumped in Auckland by Tamahedi was not Heidi and her barns because it had been switched. Let's jump back to our interview with Darren Old and what he said he saw when he drove onto that Taikato property back in 1989. And like, yeah, how, what was the order, how it went? You got out of the car? Yeah, I just drove up the driveway going onto the Taikato Old Homestead to Pat's place. Um, drove up there, uh, pulled up the Two white Subaru station wagons were slightly to the left of me, both noses facing the house. Um, and Donald was standing there, had taken the number plate off one of them, the one closest to me. Um, that was all I, I saw. And when I asked him what he's doing, he goes, I'm doing an insurance job for Gary Spinks. So I didn't think any much more of it, you know, it was a common thing back in those days. Darren believes that when he drove into that driveway, he saw not one, but two matching white Subaru station wagons. And that Donald Turner appeared to be in the middle of swapping plates on these vehicles. According to Darren, even more important than the car Heidi and Urban were driving was the car that Don Turner Sr. was driving. So, so tell me what car you remember Don Turner driving around about this time. Yeah, Don had... Don had a white Subaru station wagon um, that would have been put in, say, average condition. Yep. Um, yeah. And you saw, what did you see, what you saw Don with a car, so that day you come in, right, and it's, yeah. you see, and Donald Turner, who's the yeah, son, yeah, says Donald about Turner. the insurance job. Yeah. And for you guys back then, that's a pretty standard yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And what would normally happen with an insurance job? Like, what would be the normal run of things that you would do? Oh, I'd be just abracadabra gone, mate. You know? <laughs> but how would yeah. you get rid of a car? Yeah, like, would yeah. you dump it or burn it? Or yeah, what? we'd cut them in half, burn them, you know? Yeah. Chop them up. Yeah. Burn them was a favourite, yeah. Push them over the bank, put them in a lake tailboat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so you said, so after that day, right, you see... Um, that he says the insurance job for Gary Spinks. Yeah. And then sometime later, you saw Don Turner Sr. down with the bulldozer. Tell me about that. Yeah, at one period of time, um, with White Subaru Station wagon over to the right-hand side of the corner of the paddock on the river bend, and Don out with the bulldozer, quite a good-sized bulldozer, and the car was just sitting there and... Um, I was led to believe that that car's gone into the riverbank. Um, yeah, I didn't see it going in there myself. Okay. 
Okay, so you seen yeah, the car sitting there. Yeah, I seen the car sitting there, and then Don's over there with a the bulldozer. Yeah. Um, Did you? Is it sort of to your knowledge from what you heard that that car could be the Swedes' car? Yeah, yeah. So under my belief that um, the car that you fellas got isn't the Swedes' car. Um, it's actually Don Turner's car that you've got, yeah. not Urban Hoglund's car. When you came in that day, yeah. Donald was switching the plates over. Yeah, Donald had the number plates off one car. I don't know which 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 car was which. You know, there were two of them there. And then, as I look at that photo that I've seen, I did point out one unusual thing about that Sabari car, but that was about it, to my knowledge. You know, like I never seen the front of the car. I didn't, you know, I didn't walk around the front of the cars and have a look at them. Yeah. I just, it was just an everyday thing, you know, I wasn't, yeah. yeah. It's sort of been common knowledge for a lot of years and I suppose it probably been a lot of gossip. Would that be normal? <clears throat> if you were doing a normal insurance job, like for yeah. Gary Spinks, would yeah. you put the car in that river normally? Would that be what you'd normally do? No, no, shit no. No? No. You wouldn't put it on your property somewhere? No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. And you're sort um, of like, in your mind, and from people that you've spoken to and stuff, like, how sure are you that the Swedes car went, actually went into that river? Yeah, car? yeah, that's right. Well, would you say you're like 50%, 80% sure? Like, how, how confident do you yeah, feel? Yeah, I'd be 50% that? sure on that, you know, 50-50, yeah. like, yeah. without seeing something I just wouldn't want to say, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, it's one of those things. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say myself it's in there, and then fuck, we go and dig it up, and it's not there. You know, like yeah, that's sort of where I am with that. You just know what uh, you saw. Yeah, you I saw just, that car there. Yeah, I just know what I've seen, and yeah, you know, if, if Darren was come to the party or something, he'd probably say the same thing too. Yeah. So is it possible that the cars were switched? Like Darren says, he can't say 100%, but he knows what he saw. Two matching white Subaru station wagons, Donald Turner with the plates off one, and finally he recalls seeing Donald Turner Sr. with the bulldozer near the river on the farm in a white Subaru park next to it. Initially, when Darren told me this, I almost immediately dismissed it purely on the grounds of, surely not, someone would have noticed. And when I pulled up a photo of the Subaru police found and believe is Heidi and her barns to show Darren, he immediately pointed something out. These black squares, he said, these aren't factory. They've been added later. Look into that. So I went and checked other photos of the car. And I was shocked to find in a photo of Heidi standing beside their car during their trip of New Zealand, in the exact same spot on the back of the car, the black squares, you guessed it, they aren't there. Also, on the car police found, black paint has also been added above each tyre in a moon shape. Again, this paint does not appear in the photo of Heidi standing beside the car during the trip. This leaves only two options. That Heidi and Urban painted this on themselves at some point after the photo was taken. Or that Darren's right. 
and it's a different car. And then there's another twist. The car keys. If you'll recall, the car keys and how Tamahedi broke into the car was a sticking point. Tamahedi claimed he found a set of car keys in the car and simply used these to steal it. However, police maintained this wasn't the case because Heidi and Urban were only given a single key. And despite a nationwide search, no key cutter came forward to say they had cut a new set of keys for the Swedes. This simple fact has never been explained. It's just an unknown. But if the car was switched, then possibly the other car simply had a set of keys. And these were the ones eventually used by Tamahedi. I'm going to be clear that I'm not saying the vehicle was definitely switched. And I've not been able to confirm that Donald Turner Sr. did indeed own a white Subaru station wagon. But it can't be denied that there are some pretty clear discrepancies with the vehicle. And when combined with what Darren saw, warrants further investigation. Perhaps the police hold evidence that the couple had made these alterations themselves and I'm just not aware of it. I really don't know. There was a container of flat black paint recovered from the Sunkist Lodge. Although we have to consider the police took literally every item in the entire hotel so it could be unrelated. This model of Subaru station wagon had an identification tag as opposed to a stamped chassis which for someone experienced, would not be difficult to swap. I will say this, Darren is not the only person I've spoken to that believes the vehicle recovered by police was not the Swedes. I recently called Barry Lindsay to see if he could remember what type of car Don Turner Sr. owned. While he couldn't remember that, he did remember something else. But, um, yeah, because I sold him a car that got wrecked of mine and he did it up and came and showed me and shit, it looked bloody good. He made about three grand on it. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but other than that, um, do you remember? I had not a lot to do with him. Do you remember out there, do you remember what kind of car Don Turner used to drive? Uh, No, he had my Hillman Hunter there for a while, but... um, he sold that. Mm. He sold it pretty quick. He got it straightened out. And um, did he used to have a few different cars come and, and yeah, go? Yeah, he had uh, quite a few cars. I couldn't tell you what sort of vehicles he owned at the time. Yeah, I've heard that he may have owned a white Subaru station wagon, the same type as Heidi and her barn. No, I don't know. Can't, can't remember. Yeah, well, it was quite funny. I don't know if I told you. Did I tell you about me going to the police at Taronga? Well, you told me you went in there and they sort of fobbed you off. Yeah, they told me to piss off. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Do you know, um, uh, I, I think, well, I'm pretty much confident. You know, Darren, your son, you know, so he was living up in that bush yeah. around about that time. And he saw something up there in that bush. Has he ever talked to you about that? Nah. 
Yeah, we he... used to talk it, but that's why I never got involved with it because my son was up there and he was on the TV. He was, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. As far as I went, I saw them go by in the car and that was my lot more or less. Yeah. You know, um, but that has stuck with me for the rest of my life because when I'm working here, I look up there and I can see the spot where he was buried. Yeah. And... It sort of affects you all your life, you know what I mean? It's not until you actually – people can talk about it and say – but when I look at it, they were probably on their last journey the day I saw them take them up, you know? Yeah. And that sticks with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, because, see, I knew that there was a car down in the industrial area and – I heard that it was a Swedes car, and I don't know how I come to hear about it, but I was down that area of town, and in those days, the industrial area was a lot of vacant lots, and this car was there. It was a white Subaru car, and I told the police about it, but... um. So hang on. So you're saying that someone there was a bit. You, someone told you that there was this white Subaru station wagon, and it was parked. Yeah, it was in an in an industrial area, uh, um, in Wangamatan. I drove by and I saw this car there, and it was just a white Subaru because the car I saw was the same, and it had no. It was a good clean car, and there were no smashes on it or bent yeah. panels or anything. And I thought, why would it be in an industrial area? And I went by and I saw this white car. I think my son might have told me. That's how I knew it was here. I know you can't remember many details of the car they were in, but when you saw the car, was it quite, it wasn't like a real bashed up car. It was like a clean car. No, it was a clean, straight car. When the day I saw it, it was as tidy as. But if I know the Turner boys went to it, I know that, boy, they were real, real bad. Like, you know, that they, they would kill. They would knife somebody. Mm. That's the sort of people they were. Dar- so Darren, Darren Old, he tells me, like, he says that Darren Lindsay, he knows exactly what fucking happened back, you know, with the Swedes and that he's basically just kept his mouth shut all these years because he's scared of these Turner guys. Um, yep, that's dead right. That would I'd back that all the way. Yeah, I wonder if when they ran him off the road that time, that might have been them saying, "You keep your fucking mouth shut." No, no, that was my youngest son. Oh, different. That son. they ran off the road. They didn't like him. They chased my son, and they just rammed his car and rammed it right off the road and smashed it into a power pole. They tailgated it into a power pole. Bloody hell. And my son had split the car in half, just about. My son was ended up in the middle of the road unconscious, and he woke up, you know, sometime later because there was nobody in town at the time, even though it was in the main street of Wongamata. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there was just no law back then. Oh, there is no law. Like um, the drugs were the whole thing. Everybody in town here, <coughs> they were on drugs or they were alcoholics. Yeah. When I first came to Wongamata, there was only 160-odd people stayed over in the middle of winter. Wow. 
It's like a That's city. how many people lived in Wongmatar at the time and they were all the misfits. Local constable Bob Cardy may not have remembered the Turner brothers, but Barry sure does. And he seems to remember the same type of car parked in an industrial area in Fongamata at that time. So is it connected? I gave Darren another call, just to confirm whether he might remember if the brothers continued driving the car around after this time. So I wonder if, um, I wonder if, fuck, like, do you remember if they were still driving a white car around after all this shit went down? Because if... Nah, I, I, I can't remember, I can't recall that, eh, Ryan? Yeah. You know, I don't, I, you know, all I recall is just, you know, what I've seen that day, like, it's been in my head for years, you know? Yeah, I mean, but you definitely saw that car with the bulldozer by it. Yeah, over in the corner of the paddock, Don has the bulldozer down in the in that corner there. Yeah. Um, Darren knows that too. You know. Yeah. Darren knows that. But you, um, but you didn't see him actually push it in. You just saw it down there. Yeah, I just seen it down there in the corner. You know, then, then yeah, sort of. Um, I'm not too, I can't really say, hey, Ryan, you know, I wouldn't want to say. Yeah. But I do know at one stage you really did concentrate on backfilling that fucking corner, like stuck mega truckloads in there of, of concrete slab going yeah. in there, like there's a lot of fucking, there's a lot of slab in there and stuff. So where does this leave us? Could the car have been switched? At this point, I can say, Look, I don't know. But is it possible? Maybe. And for many locals from the area at the time, it's apparently common knowledge. When the police located the vehicle, it had the same plates, it looked more or less the same, and it had all the Swedes gear in it. There would have been no reason to suspect it wasn't the same car. So I do wonder if they did really check with any great depth. But at this point, I'm not sure. And until there's any real evidence, I'm going to put it down as a maybe. But something that in my opinion, the police, with their vast resources, should be looking into. And something to note, remember, I'm not the police. I think people often forget that I can't just jump onto a database and access every vehicle a person has ever owned. I'm just a private citizen with no more access than you. And until that time, I get that extra piece of this puzzle. The car and a possible switch will remain just a theory. A tantalizing outlier in this crazy case. The biggest issue I have is corroboration. At this point, all I have is Darren Old's statement that he saw the car and that he saw Heidi and her barn with the brothers. This lack of corroboration, this is a real problem. I want to believe Darren, but I need more. And it seems that if his story is true, then he's the only witness alive that's going to speak to me.
And I was stuck on this for some time. In a limbo. But I kept searching. Hunting. And sometimes, when you turn over enough rocks, you find something. Right now, I am, the hairs on my body are standing on end. I just got an email that has just corroborated. Holy shit. Like, this case is about to be turned on its head. All from one word. One word. Dad. I was contacted by a source during my investigation who told me of someone who'd reached out to a reporter some years ago with a story about the Turner brothers. The source hadn't regarded it with too much interest and as such it had been somewhat put to the side. I'd been told about it but had assumed that the person that had reached out to this reporter must have been Darren Old with the same story he's told me. But I asked my source to send through the message just so I could check it myself because you never know. And within 30 seconds I was shocked to see one word. Dad. The person that contacted this reporter had said that the whole case about what really happened to Heidi and her barn was basically bullshit. And that the real story happened in Parakawai. And in this one message that was forwarded to me, the person described the Taikato farm and a batch five kilometers down the road. They even mentioned a body being found. But that part wasn't of interest to me. The bit that made my hair stand up was the final sentence. We all used it at different times, and even Joan has stayed in it when needed. Dad was the informal manager, due to going out with Glenis Tykato. That sentence is completely innocuous, without one other piece of key information. The man that was going out with Glenis Tykato and who managed the Taikato farm this time, in 1989, was one Donald Turner Sr., the father of David Turner, James Turner, and Donald Turner. Which quite simply means that the person that wrote this message was not Darren at all. It was a Turner. And to me... That means one thing. Corroboration. Um, you know, there's one person right now that I need to speak to desperately, and that's Darren. And I've just called him, and I'm, mate, I'm coming to meet you right now. I now have two people saying the exact same story. I thought it was the same person, but it wasn't. It's two different people, and 
but I, man, this is fucking crazy. This is crazy. Hey, mate. How are you? Thanks. Good, mate. Yeah, Good. Good. Yeah, there's massive fucking development. So, yeah. obviously, your story, what you've told me, I've yeah. said to you, like, yeah. I want to believe you. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, that's right, yeah. So, when you went there that day, there was four yeah. people at the... Oh, Heidi and her barn, but then who were the other people that were there? Yeah, there was Heidi and her barn and the three brothers, the Donald three brothers. James and... and yeah. Donald James no one and else Dave. There. No one else. I didn't so see theory, anyone else there. It's only you six people that would know that they're there. Heidi O'Barn, those three brothers, and you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's, that's right. There's only three brothers? There's no other, like, sisters yeah, or anything? Yeah, there, like there is a big family of, the, of oh, okay. them, but, How many? but at that time... Yeah. At that time, those were the only three brothers on that farm. James is the eldest, Dave, and then there's Donald. And Donald is a junkie. Hard out, and then when <clears throat> Donald went away for robbing chemists, and, that, and he came out, and he was away for seven years, and he specifically came to see me, tracked me down, found me. He was going on about the sweet things. I didn't say anything. I didn't bite into it, but he made a pretty good point of it, you know. How like, long ago was this? Um, like after you was, found the body, like way after. Yeah, that after I found the bodies, Donald was in jail. I think he did about seven years down Kaitoki Prison, and he was telling me, oh. He was trying to get information out of me, and I wasn't buying into it. And he, he was—he told me that he told the the prison wardens that they got the wrong man. They got the wrong man, and he made it real clear. This is Don. This is Donald, young Donald. That it's Dave that fucking did this. It's and that's what he told all the corrections officers in Kaitoki Prison. You know, um, so he made it clear. But he was—he was present there. He was taking another plates off that car. But anyway, so what's what's happened is, you know, like I said, you told me this and I was like, fuck, yeah. I want to believe it, but yeah. I've only yeah. got you. Yeah. So I've been talking to someone else and yeah. and there was, there's been someone else yeah. that came forward and I got sent this thing and it was a message that was sent from someone. Yeah. And they were like, this was sent a few years ago yeah. and the person didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah. And and I was like, send it, send it through to yeah. me. And they're like, it yeah. might be interesting to you. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, and I was looking at it, and I thought, because they told me about the rough story, and I was like, oh, it must have been Darren. Darren must have reached out to someone. And I was like, it must be Darren, I, I know that. And then when they sent it through, my hair went on end, because I knew it wasn't you. Yeah. Because in it, it said, Dad, which means it had to have been one of the brothers. Um, they say in the message, they're like, um, yeah, so what they said, there's a few different things. But they said in the message basically that they were, this person was at, went to the sheds or whatever, was there, and said that he gave the, some one of the brothers, this is what he says, brothers, gave one of them a ride into town in the Swede's car or something. And when he came back, the whole mood had changed at the shed or whatever, and that Dave and that were acting in a way that he didn't like with Heidi and her barn. And then, so then he was like, I'm, I'm going to leave. So I'll, there's someone else that said, I've yeah, seen them there. Yeah, and, and then this person says that, said that he left. He was like, I don't, I didn't like what I was saying, so I left. And then in the rest of the message, he goes on to say, yeah, so my dad was, um, he went out with Glenis Taikato and um, he kind of ran the farm. 
So it has to be Don. Who else could it be? Don's obviously been, has talked, has come forward and said this. This was to another reporter a few years ago. Donald Hayes. Donald Turner. Has to be. Who else is it? They said dad. And they said my dad basically ran the property because he went out with Glenis Taikido. That's right. And then what this person says is he says, he's like, oh, because at one point there was a body lying by a fence about 75 metres away from, from one of the sheds. He said, or something along these lines. And it's like, what the fuck is he talking about here? And I don't know whether it's Heidi Orban's body was lying there and then it was shifted somewhere else. But he says, this shit. And I was like, as soon as I saw the name Dad, I was like, this is one of the Turner boys. But what it means is that there's someone, one of them, that's obviously willing to speak. And I just thought, must be Don. Look, it's got to be Don all day. But my thought is, okay, we need to go find it. Corroboration. The implications of this are mind-blowing. Up until this moment, Darren Old thought he was the only one. The only person that saw Heidi and her barn on that property that would be willing to speak. Darren said that sometime in the mid-90s, Donald Turner was released from prison and sought him out to speak to him. And all Donald wanted to talk about was the Swedes and his belief in his own brother's involvement. And at the time, Darren didn't know what to make of it. Because he knew that Donald knew Darren had seen them there that day. I sat back down with Darren the next day, and we spoke about this strange meeting. Uh, Donald Turner went to prison for something unrelated to this. Yeah. He got out of prison sometime in the early 90s. What happened then? Yeah, Don, um, yeah Donald Turner went, went to prison for a, a period of time after this, quite a long period of time, it was about seven years, I think, was the sentence, and then... He came out, he came to see me after he got out of prison, carrying on about this um, Swedish murder thing, like he came directly to me and I thought, oh, that's a bit strange, I haven't seen you for a while, Donald. And he just wouldn't shut up about it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, I didn't say anything because I knew that, uh, I knew what he knew, you know. He, he knew that I'd walk right in, in on him that day, so I think he was just trying to get information out of me, so I didn't... I didn't mention anything to Donald, you know, about it. I just forgot about it and I didn't speak about it again. Um, that's the way things are around Coromandel sometimes. But when it's regarding this, um, it's a bit different, isn't it? But you were worried um, that day. You didn't tell him anything because nah, you thought... Yeah, I thought, yeah, he was just fishing, you know, to, as to what I know. And I didn't say anything. I didn't bite on it. I just let it go. Um, because, I mean, naturally, you might think, yeah, you know, at that point, you're like, fuck, like, yeah. if I tell him what I... He might be testing to see if I remember. That's right. Because these cunts might try and kill me. Yeah, yeah. It seems that Darren isn't alone. But for the last 34 years, he just hasn't known it. Naturally, when Donald showed up out of the blue in the 90s and started asking Darren about the Swedes, he thought he was testing him, probing, to see what he knew or was willing to say. Darren thought they might be finally looking to tie up 
that loose end. But it would appear that wasn't the case. If only Darren had known, Donald too wants to speak. Now, I just have to try and find him and let all the pieces fall into place. Oh man. I just managed to get hold of, well, I messaged Donald, uh, the only person, well, potentially the only other witness that saw Heidi in her barn with David and James Turner on that property, apart from Darren. And I'd sent him a message on Facebook. I found him on there and sent that. And he hadn't seen it, been a few days, but I thought, oh yeah, it's probably just, you know, gone to his other's folder. You know how that happens. And eventually I thought, oh, well, I'll try through his wife. So I messaged her and she messaged me back only about five minutes ago and said, basically, sorry, I don't know who you are, but my husband, Donald, he's dead. Next time you hear from us, it may be from the Cook Islands. It's exciting to think we will be on a real South Pacific island. I hope it's as nice as we've imagined. If I can find any, I'll buy some grass skirts to bring back home. So then we can sing and dance hula hula on your deck in the summer. The whole gang of us, with Puttu and Yuhu in the front. Till next time. All the best and send our love to all. Urban. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Joachim Berg as Urban. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding, and you can support us to continue to make great content Plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.